Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitzis, the founder of Daily Coast, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Ellaveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, beautiful people. Thank you for joining us on Daily Coast is the Brief. We are back live today with me, Carrie Ellaveld, and special guest host, the dazzling Kara Salaya. Hi, Hello. Hi, everyone. We are so happy to be back. <laughs> so happy to be back. So Marcos uh, Melitzis is on vacation, summering somewhere. And if he's watching this, he just gagged a little at the word summering. So, but he will be back next week. And in the meantime, a few minor things have happened since our last live broadcast. The Delta variant, unfortunately, very unfortunately, has spiked, um, dealing a major blow to the speedy gains the Biden administration had made uh, in terms of vaccinations. Um, this is just a brief overview. But and just today, a few hours ago, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York resigned after a damning report from the uh, state's attorney general uh, documenting a succession of sexual harassment um, in which he engaged. And uh, also today, big news day, uh, the $1 trillion uh, bipartisan infrastructure deal actually cleared the Senate. Um, so a real capstone for Donald Trump, who jump-started the infrastructure talks uh, on day one of his administration in 2017. God bless him. He really stuck with it, didn't he, Kara? He's, he's he Donald Trump. He did. <laughs> Deal maker. Deal maker. Anyway, you got anything to add, Kara? Yeah, I just wanted to say, since I'm always on the student debt beat, that in the past week, uh, the Biden administration has extended the pause of payments for federal student loans until January 31st, 2022. 2022? Goodness, what years are we in? And uh, that Marissa Higgins from Daily Coast wrote a really good piece about that, uh, where I believe the headline was the Biden administration does the bare minimum uh, <laughs> regarding student <laughs> debt relief. Um, but nonetheless, that is going to provide millions of borrowers a lot of relief uh, in these very difficult times. So as it's always, that, we're going to continue pushing for cancellation, but yeah, it's we'll take it. It's it's certainly better than nothing. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. And it does by time. And we still don't know what the administration, where they're going to come down on cancellation. So yeah. um, it buys them time to think, you know, longer about that. And for our activists, of course, to be in their ear about that at the same time. So correct. Yeah, anyway. for sure. All right. So unfortunately, one very important thing that didn't happen uh, during our, our time away was Senate passage of a voting rights bill, specifically the For the People Act. Um, and uh, it, that's important because anti-gerrymandering provisions were the beating heart of that bill. Um, it is being reworked supposedly in the Senate with Joe Manchin as, as part of the team reworking it. I know there's an effort to reboot it in the House. Um, it will look different if it comes around. Uh, it will probably be a much scaled down bill. But if you know, but there's a lot of provisions in that could have been really good and were super important 
unfortunately, to try to pass before what is going to happen later this week, which is the U.S. Census Bureau is going to finally release their nationwide demographic data um, on uh, th that will kick off the redistricting process uh, and a whole lot of gerrymandering by Republicans that will hobble Democrats over the next decade. Now, I'm not saying Democrats won't do some of their own gerrymandering, but things are just stacked so much in the favor of Republicans by sheer numbers. Just to just to give you an idea, uh, Republicans will dominate the process, drawing 187 uh, congressional districts to Democrats, 75 districts. And I, I, I made a, I spent some time making up a really detailed graphic here. I don't know. Does that translate on the screen? <laughs> our, our folks listening at home to the podcast, uh, we have a really stunning rendering in which Carrie has written with the most elite Sharpie pencil. 187 is greater than 75 on what I imagine to be a gold lined sheet of paper. So <laughs> that's, right. that's right. Anyway, I worked hard on that and utilized basically all of my math skills at this point in life. Um, Our comms director that. said that that graphic is stunning. So yeah. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> it's a no. If, if comms says it's okay, thumbs up there, we're good to go. So um, no, unfortunately, I mean, you know, Democrats are really, really uh, behind the eight ball here. And, yeah. and, um, and Ari Berman um, from Mother Jones magazine recently reported, and this is one of the things that got me thinking, God, we got to do this show. I'm certainly no gerrymandering expert. But that anywhere from six to 13 seats in the House, Republicans could gain anywhere from uh, six to 13 seats in the House wow. through their control of the redistricting process in four states alone, just four states. So that's Georgia, Florida, North Carolina and Texas. Yeah. So that like literally means that Republicans could gerrymander their way into a majority by redrawing lines in just four states. I mean, to be perfectly honest, not pretty at all, but to help us. And there's, you know, there's going to be legal battles. There's going to be a whole lot of things going on. Um, you know, districts across this, the nation are going to be, I mean, states across the nation are going to be going through this process. Some of right. them have nonpartisan uh, commissions that redistrict. Some of it will be controlled by Democrats. Some, a lot of it controlled by Republicans, but here to help us make sense of it all, we have two experts in the field joining us. And one is Simone Leeper, a legal counsel at the nonpartisan Campaign Legal Center. And the center just launched uh, planscore.org. That's planscore.org, which is a free online tool to help advocates uh, look and see if the redistricting that has been done in their area is fair. Um, and so uh, thank you, Simone, for joining us. We're super glad to have you on. I am thrilled to be here. She's and and in a second, we'll get Simone to tell us a little bit about what the Campaign Legal Center does, because she's going to be in you know some ways of our, our our legal expert on what's going on. But then we also have our, you know, from the our own Stephen Wolf from the da Daily Coast Elections political staff and 
he is, you know, our gerrymandering expert. He's a redistricting analyst. And if we read anything about gerrymandering, uh, it's it's Stephen Wolf who does it. So Stephen Wolf is hopefully going to join us. He should be here soon, I believe. Maybe yes. he should. He's having go some ahead. technical issues, yeah. though. I think we'll go ahead and Simone have you kind of kickstart <laughs> us and let us know while we've got you, while we wait for Stephen, what the Campaign Legal Center does and what it's about. And as Carrie said earlier, you know, a lot of what we're talking about here you know, sometimes falls under different party lines. But at the end of the day, what we're interested in is that it is just and fair, and that should be a nonpartisan issue, which seems to be what you work with at CLC. So take it away, please. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, you know, sort of our viewpoint is that gerrymandering, partisan gerrymandering is wrong, period. It doesn't matter if it's done by Democrats, it doesn't matter if it's done by Republicans. And it's a it's a people in power issue. And the right. people in power are going to use their power to keep themselves in power. And it happens in states that are controlled by Republicans. It happens in states that are controlled by Democrats. And we've seen it happen everywhere from everyone. So we're happy to be here fighting this fight and, you know, fighting it for anyone who has a problem with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Could you give us a quick like log line of what a campaign legal center does? Yeah, absolutely. So Campaign Legal Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit. And we work in a variety of democracy-focused issue areas. Um, obviously, we do redistricting work. We also have a voting rights section, campaign finance, uh, ethics section. And we pretty much work to just advance nonpartisan principles of democracy through both litigation and also advocacy. We love that. <laughs> right. So this is going to this this data from the census bureau is going to be transmitted um on thursday it's going to be released on thursday i should say so can you just give us an idea of what starts to happen then like what kind of process does that kick off and then we can get into more details uh later after we get a little bit of an overview yeah absolutely so what it kicks off is the map drawing process um it's the data that is done that is used to draw maps from your congressional maps all the way down to your school board maps or your city council maps, those local races that you care about, this is the data that's used for all of those things. So depending on what state you live in, you have different map drawers. So some states, our favorites I would say, have independent redistricting commissions and those individuals are drawing maps with nonpartisan aims of representation and equity. Um, and then you have in other states, legislatures that hopefully have the same aims. Um, Oftentimes they don't, and they're going to be using that data to also be drawing those maps. And as are all of your localities um, for all the smaller uh, districts as well. And, uh, and what do you think the states are to watch in this upcoming redistricting cycle? Like what's the lay of the land as we look at this process getting kicked off? Yeah, so there's two major areas that we want to keep an eye on um, that are different than the last redistricting cycle or really any redistricting cycle before us. So one of them is the context in which this redistricting is happening, and that's the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's a reason we're getting this data on August 12th, um, a time that is usually when we would be wrapping up this process, maps would be being pumped out of states. We'd be looking at what these maps look like instead of just getting into the process of drawing them. So what that means is that there's going to be a more, in a lot of states, compressed time frame to draw the maps because there are oftentimes constitutional deadlines in the states by which maps have to be drawn. So there's gonna be a shorter period of time for public participation. So people hitting the ground running is gonna be all the more important on that front. The other thing is that there are two huge Supreme Court cases in the last decade 
that have changed the lay of the land that we're in now. And so one of those was the um, Shelby County v. Holder case that got rid of a main provision of the VRA that you guys mentioned um, that was the pre-clearance provision. And so we have a number of states now that we're definitely going to be keeping an eye on. And those are the states that were previously covered by pre-clearance and they had to submit their maps previously to the DOJ. This is the first time they're going to be redistricting and just get to put those maps through with none of that uh, check. Uh, the other case is unfortunately the partisan gerrymandering cases that went through where the Supreme Court said, hands off for federal courts on partisan gerrymandering. They don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, that's really unfortunate because that's one avenue of challenging partisan gerrymandering that we won't have in this cycle. So we'll be, you know, be keeping an eye on our usual targets for the places where partisan gerrymandering is likely to pop up. And that's states with unilateral control, largely. States that are either all controlled by Republicans, all controlled by Democrats. Uh, whoever's in power will use that unilateral control. We would hope not to, but they probably will use it for their partisan advantage. Wow. That is all very heartbreaking. Uh, I'm going to take this uh, to, this opportunity to actually have Stephen brought in, Carrie, because it seems oh, like yeah. he's back. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, Stephen is here. Okay. <laughs> and <laughs> I guess it. I'm going to start with, uh, it, it will be a question for both of you, but um, I'll start with Stephen because Stephen is kind of our gerrymandering guru here in at Daily Coast. And very broadly, how does redistricting impact people's day-to-day -day life? So gerrymandering and redistricting overall are incredibly important for determining who has a say in legislative power and you know, even who runs the legislature itself. And we had several legislatures in the past decade, uh, in swing states in particular, where uh, because of gerrymandering, the majority of voters were not able to elect a majority of representatives. And so the party that won fewer votes would keep winning a majority of, of seats. And so the, you know, who is drawing the maps uh, can be even just fully determinative of who is wielding political power. Can you can you tell us which some of those states are? I mean, I, and some of them, right? And you end up with a Democratic governor and a, a Republican, or maybe the other way around too. But it's I think in some cases you end up with a you know with a Democratic uh, governor and then a completely uh, GOP controlled state legislature based on gerrymandering. I just happen to I mean Michigan's one of them, I believe. Um, so uh, can you can you highlight some of those states for us? Yeah, so the last uh, round of redistricting happened after the 2010 elections, which were, of course, a very good election for Republicans. And they thus ended up controlling redistricting in most, uh, if not almost all of the swing states. So you ended up having states such as Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, where Republicans were able to draw these very extreme gerrymanders. And in several of these states were able to uh, win elections such as in 2012 or 2018, even when voters preferred Democrats. So in a state like Michigan, for instance, I believe the statistic is that Democrats have won more votes than Republicans for the state house in four out of the five last five elections since the 2010 census. Uh, but re Republicans have won legislative majorities in the chamber in every single one of those elections. So, you know, even when you have voters voting, you know, one way consistently, it's just not enough to overcome these very unfairly drawn districts. Uh, and, and elect uh, a chamber based on majority rule. Absolutely. Um, Simone, I, I wanted to ask about going back to the census. Um, there's been a delay and what have been the reasons for the census delay so far? Like more 
thoroughly, basically. <laughs> yeah. So essentially, because of the pandemic, it was just a lot harder to go door to door and gather the information that the census aims to gather. So there was a delay in getting the data. Um, so there's been a delay in processing the data. Uh, and that's why, you know, we see this delay in the release of, you know, all the information we need to conduct redistricting. And what are the effects of that delay, if I could ask? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, some states have, um, you know, even a constitutionally required deadline by which they need to complete their maps. Um, Michigan is actually one example of that. And so you have maps that need to be completed, um, but there's a lot less time to have the process play out. There's a lot less time for public hearings. A lot of times there's usually hearings that take place all over the state. Um, there's hearings that take place, you know, at different times and there's different levels in which there's uh, maybe proposed maps. And then you get to have a hearing where people talk about and give input on those proposed maps. So because we have a lot more compressed timeline, a uh, big concern is, you know, the lack of public participation and also the lack of transparency. You know, beforehand, we've seen, um, you know, Wisconsin in 2011 was a huge example where maps were drawn in, you know, legitimately a secret room in a law firm um, away from the press, away from the public. And there's some fear that this delay might have caused some of that to happen or will cause it to happen so that the maps can get done in time in different places. You know, I have two deadline related follow ups and I'm just going to stick with Simone for a second. One one is if you if you look at those deadlines, I mean, I think a lot of them are later in the year or or early next year when I was looking at them. And I wonder if there's any chance of a voting rights uh, bill being passed in the interim. Like if on a, you know, Hail Mary chance that the Senate manages to pass something in like September or October, is there any way it disrupts the those gerrymanders, those redistricting? Because it's it would be, it would, it one of the, you know, assuming that a gerrymandering provision was in the bill, right? One, one, and that would, that would bring back and um, settle out gerrymandering for both sides, for Republicans and Democrats. But my question is, is there any, is there any chance that a, if a bill, if a bill passed the Senate and the House in September, October, is there any chance at all that those uh, maps would get disrupted? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there is a chance that would happen. I think it's almost certain that there would be disruptions. The question is what kind and for which races, right? So you're going to have, I mean, there's races in 2022, and you also need to have candidates for those races in 2022, theoretically, who know what districts they're running in. Um, and so there's a chance that there might be maps that are in place for 2022, and then we would have maps that go in place for the next round of elections that would be in play, you know, in line with the For the People Act. Um, there's a chance of that. And it really is state dependent because some of the states have gotten extensions and some of the states haven't. And along those lines, then I know that there's already like, I want to say a dozen, I, I can't remember the exact number, but suits that have already been filed in these, maybe it was it seven or 12, you may know the exact number, but lawsuits that have already been filed mainly by democratic groups, pro-democratic groups, um, you know, seeking to get ahead of what they are seeing as a gerrymandering storm. What are those? How do you file? You know, how do you pre-file? I mean, I'm not, they didn't pre-file, they filed. But how do you like preemptively file? And what are those uh, challenges about? How will those play out? Yeah, so those are largely pretty early one person, one vote challenges and anticipating those sorts of issues. It's not a direct challenge to a gerrymander, obviously, because there hasn't been a gerrymander. And 
you know, we'd hope that everyone does good maps and that there are, you know, fair lines drawn and that there will be no gerrymandering challenge. So I know CLC has their eye looking forward to when these maps do come down um, and when there will be, you know, partisan or raci racial gerrymanders potentially that we would want to challenge. I wanted to uh, talk to Stephen about, because I know that this is something that you're pretty much dedicate. I, I would say the bulk of your time at Daily Coast is talking mm -hmm. about these uh, these maps and, and actually even drawing some yourselves of what uh, equitable maps would look like. And I think for people, you know, at Daily Coast, we pride ourselves in having a pretty wonky audience that will eat up any type of information like this. But for folks who are talking to their friends who aren't so much in the weeds of what is happening, what is the pitch to care about this? Uh, you know, the big pitch is that we want our elections to be fair. And a lot of people don't understand the basics of how, you know, we come to, to get that. And redistricting plays a very key role uh, you know, we have a system where we let uh, elected officials draw their own districts and pick their own voters. And, you know, as there's this saying that it should not be that way. It should be the other way around of voters choosing the representatives. So we need to uh, reform the institutions we have right now. And the way that regular people can get involved with that, you know, there are efforts to use ballot initiatives or, uh, you know, use litigation in the courts or even just uh, get people more aware that, hey, there is a hearing at your legislature going on next month and, and you need to show up and make yourself heard. Uh, so there are all these ways that, that voters can get involved in um, doing so uh, right now is really critical because, as you know, as we've discussed uh, before, you know, this is happening on a very compressed time frame. And legislators are counting on the public not being aware of what's going on and not being able to show up for these meetings and not be able to raise awareness that they're up to no good. Uh, and so if you know people can mobilize, especially draw attention and media attention to what is going on in state houses, uh, that can have a really big impact on the process. And I, I want to ask Simone the, the same thing, but with the caveat of um, how you basically wear off the fatigue that comes with this, because I think a lot of voters have been experiencing so much fatigue of the last four years of just constant bad news, of constant things they have to care about, of constant information that they have to get. How are you able to personally, I think, because we do have a lot of activists, organizers, legal people who listen to our podcast, but also on a broader movement level, trying to seek justice in this regard, how do you prevent burnout and fatigue on this issue? Yeah, I think you draw a lot of hope from the wins that we have had, right? Like we've had the bad Supreme Court decisions that I talked about, but we've also had a lot of independent redistricting commissions led by citizen initiatives in the last decade. Um, and that's been successful in different places. And we've been successful defending like Michigan's IRC in court. And so we have had some victories in that regard. And I would say, you know, I think Stephen alluded to this, but you can get involved in advocating for an independent redistricting commission in your state. And I'll just give a quick plug. Um, if you go to campaignlegal.org and you check out our Democracy U toolkit, uh, we actually have a guide on independent redistricting commissions and you know what you would want your IRC to look like to make it so that it would you know produce fair maps. Um, we also you know have a guide on ethics and transparency for IRCs. We obviously need these things in our map drawers, whether they're politicians or hopefully if it's an independent commission. So that's one thing. If you want to make lasting, long-lasting change change the system that you're working under because, you know, otherwise you're going to keep, you know, playing whack-a-mole with these maps every 10 years, make long lasting change. But as far as just making the change that you can right now, um, I would just impress upon people that if you've cared about any political issue in the last four years, you think you're going to care about any political issue moving forward. 
um, or anything more localized like your school board or you know what's going on in your city, redistricting is the thing to care about because it is everything. It, it touches every other issue. And so this is not a time to lose steam and think about how you care about those things and how you want them to be better. Redistricting is your time to speak up and it's your time to go into your legislature or to your map drawers and submit draft maps, you know, check the maps that they're submitting to make sure that they're not partisan gerrymanders. And again, planscore.org is a great way that you can do both of those things. Yeah, you know, I was struck when I was reaching, uh, when I was reading Ari Berman's uh, piece in Mother Jones and just thinking about how much cover coverage has been devoted. And I think rightfully so to, you know, what we call Republican voter suppression bills. Um, these, these bills that are working to make it harder to vote in many places and in many places, specifically targeting people of color uh, and Democratic voters. Um, and there's been a lot of reporting on that. And I'm sure we're going to see more reporting, of course, on the gerrymandering coming up. But really, the gerrymandering is so much worse because if you gerrymander the heck out of a state, you are likely to achieve much better, more consistent gains out of that. Whereas I think there's still some question as to how some of these rapidly passed voter suppression bills will affect people, right? Some people might be more motivated to get out. You might be able to, you know, you shouldn't have to. Morally, you shouldn't have to. No one should have to. But, you know, Democrats might be able to out-organize some of those suppression bills. But one thing you can't out-organize is a gerrymander. It's virtually impossible from what I understand. Um, so it's just interesting to think like how much we've seen about these voter suppression bills. And I think not near as much coverage about the upcoming gerrymander that I can tell, at least for me, for you guys, you might be like, I've seen tons of stuff on that, but um, you know, I'm more of a generalist. So I don't know if anyone wants to jump in and say something, please do. Carrie, I did want to uh, sort of piggyback on what Simone said that I think one of the things that folks might not be so familiar with, or, or maybe they are, is that this gerrymandering and the census data also determines a lot of, and just like state uh, officials do, determines how budgets are spent. And in the time that we are right now, I'm originally from Florida, I know Simone that you are as well, um, you know, right now we are seeing this super disastrous second, third wave of COVID in Florida. Um, and if we have maps that are gerrymandered, if we have folks that are making decisions in a partisan or, or in a way that benefits them, our producer just said fourth wave, um, that, that benefits them, we might see allocation of resources that isn't going to hospitals and communities that really need them. Like Simone said, it is everything from hospitals, schools to everything that requires some sort of budget or legislative authority. Yeah, it's, it's about equity and representation, but it's equity and division of resources. Like Carrie, I think that is absolutely spot on. Um, and, and Carrie, to your point, uh, you can organize and vote as much as you want, but if you're all packed into one district, you're not gonna change anywhere except that one district, right? Um, or if you're cracked across a bunch of different districts, then you can't make much change either. And so I, I completely agree this is an issue that that should be getting more attention. And, you know, your newsfeed is the one that I care about. I'm a redistricting lawyer. I follow every redistricting, uh, you know, uh, journalist that there is. So it needs more general coverage, too. 
Right. And just to get a little a little wonky. Um, so there's there's two different ways to gerrymander, right? A district. And you just mentioned one of them, which is cracking, which to my understanding is to break up, um, you know, your opponent's districts, and your opponent's constituents into different districts. So they're so they don't collectively have as much power in a single district. The other way is to pack. I don't know. Is it literally called packing? Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, Right. Is to pack. Right. So cracking is one, but packing is the other, which is to pack all of your own constituents into an area so that you, uh, you know, end up being very, very, if not impossible uh, to to beat in that district. So, Stephen, let's turn to you real quick. I mean, I, I. I keep going back to this Ari Berman piece from Mother Jones. It was a good piece of reporting. It scared the heck out of me. Um, it's the reason we're doing the show, basically. Um, do you think what are what are the states that you're most worried about? And do you think his assessment it was informed by um, I think uh, Target Smart Target Smart analysis Tom Bonnier? I don't know if that's the way you pronounce his name, mm. but anyway. Um, he, it was informed by them. And do you think his assessment that that within with just four gerrymandering in just four states, it's possible that Republicans could pick up, you know, anywhere from like six to a dozen seats in the House? Yeah. So, you know, I don't think that assessment is too far off the mark. I do think it is a bit of a, a, a worst case scenario, just given what we know today. But the redistricting landscape today is probably not going to be what, what it looks like over the next few months and even few years. Uh, now that we have a Supreme Court that is progressively chipping away at the Voting Rights Act, uh, you know, they could further chip away at some of the remaining redistricting protections we have, uh, especially when it comes to the representation of people of color in the South. And if that happens, uh, we could see even more extreme maps than, than is possible today in states like Texas or North Carolina. Uh, and... and you know, the, the states that Ari Berman mentioned, Texas, North Carolina, I think Florida and Georgia were the, were the other two. Um, Republicans do have a lot of room that they could work with uh, and make the maps even more extreme if protections against cracking and packing uh, black and Latino voters are eliminated. So you know, we will we'll have to pay close attention to what is going on at the Supreme Court over the next few years, uh, because as, as we've seen in the past few decades, the maps that, that get drawn in 2021 or 2022, they might not last the whole decade. And while we've alluded to how these maps could get struck down for good reasons, uh, you know, let's say a court says it violates the rights of black voters and, and orders it to be redrawn in a fairer manner. Uh, it could also go the other way. You know, if the Supreme Court issues a decision uh, further eliminating protections for black and Latino voters in particular, states could do what uh, Texas Republicans did uh, in, the, in the 2000s, where they redrew the map mid-decade uh, to exert a greater advantage. And, and that's a distinct possibility if the Supreme Court makes things even worse. And the, the main thing I'm watching with that is whether the courts, uh, the Supreme Court in particular says that uh, only state legislatures have the power to grow, draw congressional maps. Uh, there's this radical theory of federalism that Republicans have advanced, uh, where if the Supreme Court were to go along with this, uh, it would remove the check that, that state governors or state courts or state voters uh, through the ballot box uh, can have to create some of these independent redistricting commissions or veto bad maps. So we could say uh, we could see states that currently have divided government, such as Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. Uh, if that happens, these Republican legislatures would be unchecked and they could they could start passing gerrymanders again so that there are pitfalls further down the road that could happen uh, in the next few years. 
uh, beyond just this next midterm election. But as far as the next midterm election goes, you know, Democrats have very little margin of error to work with. They, they only have a five seat majority. So if Republicans are passing these maximal maps in these four states that, uh, that Berman mentioned, it's a very distinct possibility that that alone could determine control of the House. And once again, that would determine the, the allocation of all these resources and, and the consequences that follow through on that. Um, and Simone, I wanted to, you know, since we've been talking so much about Republicans and Democrats and what that means from, you know, the election level, um, we wanted to know a little bit about, you mentioned some of the wins, but um, I guess that in, in the most nonpartisan way, we, we wanted to know some of the ways that CLC was able to um, I guess, secure that the 2020 election was uh, a, a fair and, and understood election as much as it could be giving these extremely already districted maps. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a big part of what our voting rights section does and the work that we did, especially with the election going on in the midst of COVID. And so making sure that everyone got to vote and got to have their vote count. Uh, that was a big thing with absentee voting and, um, you know, some witness signature requirements, things that don't seem like a big deal um, until they are and until you can't have your ballot, you know, uh, witnessed or until your signature is rejected and so your ballot is denied. And this is thing, you know, these have disproportionate Im uh, impacts on communities of color, on um, voters with disabilities. And so we did a lot of work in that regard. Um, with some of the other wins and, you know, in terms of redistricting, we fought pretty hard against the citizenship question on the census. And I think that's something that we consider to be a huge win for communities of color who it was pretty much a done deal that including that question would have meant lots of loss of representation for communities of color. Um, not just people who weren't citizens, but people who had family who weren't citizens. But yeah, the undocumented Americans would have been undercounted in that case. And that was gonna be a huge issue. And so we fought hard against that. You know, there were lots of lawsuits against it. We filed a lot of FOIA requests to try to undercover what was going on. Uh, and we were able to make it so that there was not a citizenship question on the census. And I think that's something that's good news for our maps moving forward. Do you anticipate that um, regarding the signatures and the pandemic that we're in, that seeing how long this is playing out, the very real possibility that during midterms, we may still be dealing with some variation of the virus with some sort of voting at home and then all of the uh, terrible laws that have been passed to prevent things and accessibility to voting. Um, do you foresee some of the similar problems that we experienced in 2020 to be happening in the midterm? Or are you already swamped dealing with 2021 problems and not real taking it one year at a time? Well, we're always looking as far ahead as we can. Um, I think that's sort of the name of the game here is you have to be ready for anything that can happen. And you know, it, it's interesting that you bring that up because we actually had a court, you know, tell us that uh, a preliminary injunction that we had in place um, that helped gain relief for voters um, because of the pandemic was not really um, capable of repetition. And so it was lifted. Now, here we are again, as you said, in our fourth wave. And, and it does look like there is a potential that we'll be doing this again in the next election. And if we have to, we'll be back in court filing those cases again um, and doing everything we can to ensure that, you know, voters have their votes count. Simone, one more question on the on the legal front. You know, I, I know that obviously the as like Stephen was talking about with the Supreme Court chipping away and chipping away at the Voting Rights Act of 1965, mm -hmm. you know, virtually gutting it by most voting rights advocates, you know, estimation of things. 
there there is there is another way to uh, legally challenge um, uh, these these vote these uh, suppression bills. I think. Am I wrong? Is it is it voting rights isn't the only way to bring legal legal challenges to some of these things? Is there 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 can be a constitutional challenge too? Am I right? There can be. And in fact, we are doing that now. Some of the claims that we currently have against some of these suppressive uh, you know, bills and some of these suppressive laws that are enacted right now are constitutional challenges. Um, as far as how the VRA impacts redistricting as well, one more thing that you could advocate for, and again, we have a sample uh, for this on democracyu on campaignlegal.org, is a state voting rights act. And that's another one of the wins we've seen in the last decade is we've seen more and more states passing their own state voting rights acts um, not leaving it up to the federal government, not leaving it up to something that can be controlled by the Supreme Court of the United States, but taking action. And, you know, we are currently bringing our first case under the Washington State Voting Rights Act. And it's something that's a huge deal. And it's a way that, you know, individuals and states can try to take the power back. That's really interesting. Just out of curiosity. So how many nonpartisan, uh, either one of you can answer this question, but how many nonpartisan states have nonpartisan redistricting um, commissions. And how many states have passed of their own Voting Rights Act? Does anyone know? Yeah, so as far as the commissions go, uh, you can really view um, redistricting commissions on a gradient. There are some that are more independent than others. It's not just a black and white issue. Uh, but at the one end of the, end of the spectrum, you had these citizen commissions in, I believe it's Arizona, California, uh, Michigan, uh, uh, Colorado and, and Montana, I believe. And those are the most independent commissions where legislators really had the least influence. And then some of these other states, you have commissions where politicians have more of a direct role, uh, but it's still you know less politician controlled than if the legislature had a say. Uh, and, and those are more abundant in the Northeast and, and in other states in the West. Um, but we're still talking about a distinct minority of the states having commissions. Most states, you know, it is still the legislature uh, and, and maybe the governor, too, are the ones who are controlling the entire redistricting process. Yeah, and there have been some states that have tried to push through IRCs. So Illinois is mm -hmm. one example of in 2016, there was a you know citizen led initiative to try to get an independent redistricting commission. And that was shut down by, you know, the Democrats in the legislature. And so that's one example. You know, we've been talking about this. You know, obviously you guys are partisans and I'm I'm not. And so this isn't a you know a partisan issue. And you can see that where, you know, in Illinois, it's something that um, politicians want to maintain their control on this. Um, as far as the state voting rights act question that you asked, and I should have a direct number, I'm trying to count the states that I know about in my head. Um, I know that Virginia just passed theirs, Washington has one, California has had one for a good while, Oregon has one, but it just applies to school boards. Um, and I think that we're close to getting one in New York. So again, it's still a big minority of states, um, but it's something that's expanding. Right. This seems like the kind of thing I've, I've done a lot of work with um, police reform advocates. And it, it seems like the type of thing that does require a lot of groundwork on the hands of both the legal aspect of it and organizers. Am I correct in thinking that? Or is there maybe a more like streamlined way? This is the kind of thing that um, there has to be a big push for and a lot of internal pressure for in each individual state? Or is this something that we already are seeing um, state legislatures really taking seriously? I guess it also goes in the gradient. <laughs> maybe I'm answering my own question. I don't know, Stephen, do you, do you have a sense of how I guess how important this really is to the majority of states. Is, it, is this just something that keeps getting swept under the rug depending on who 
is in power or is there a sort of bipartisan effort anywhere right now happening in the country on the legislative level? Uh, you know, we historically, at least, it, it's been much more of a partisan issue. You know, one party will come to power and the other party will suddenly find that they love talking about redistricting reform. And then as soon as that party takes back power, they, they kind of lose interest in the subject. Uh, but we are seeing a bit of change in the last several years, uh, both the national and the state levels. And one of those examples is Virginia, where Democrats finally took back the both chambers of the legislature in 2019. Uh, before they had done that, Republicans, when they controlled the legislature, had passed a redistricting reform constitutional amendment that legally had to pass uh, twice before it could become law. And so there was a lot of question about whether Democrats having just one full power would uh, abandon their support for that measure. Uh, but to the surprise of some people, at least, uh, Democrats in the legislature did allow that amendment to come up for a vote. Uh, and while the party was divided on it, uh, in one chamber they supported it, in the other chamber they opposed it. Uh, there were enough votes for it to pass and become law, and, and it went to the voters in 2020, and they approved it by a very wide margin. So, you know, hopefully we will see more of this where uh, the public starts putting demands on, you know, legislatures that, you know, if they're going to promise that running on, if they're going to run on in elections and promise that they're going to fix redistricting, uh, that we're actually going to hold them accountable to, to doing that when they come into power. So there, there is a chance that things are starting to turn a corner, uh, but, you know, so far, Historically, the strong expectation has been that people will talk about one thing when they're out of power and then just do another thing once they finally win it. That's why I love the idea of these citizen led drives, the idea of the yep. Voting Rights Act, the mm -hmm. statewide, you know, state state by state Voting Rights Act. I mean, it gives it really empowers people to do something. Um, and uh, and then on top of that, the the idea of a nonpartisan commission and doing a, a ballot measure on that. Um, so. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Carrie, you, I think you were about to say something. Did you have a question coming up? Oh, I did. I just wanted to, you know, this is something that I think is very fascinating and important, but really difficult for folks to get hyper involved with because it's an issue that is so kind of in the seams and not necessarily as, as it is public, but folks have a hard time understanding it. And so I, I wanted to kind of just give it to Simone to be able to plug some resources that CLC has. Uh, she's mentioned some already, but how am I going to find out how gerrymandered my state is? How do I get that information? Where, where, What are quick places that I can look for that? Yeah, so I'd start off at planscore.org. Um, we just relaunched it with CLC. Um, and what that's going to do is we put all the information in one place for you. You don't have to figure out where in the depths of your, you know, legislature's website, there's this map. And then how do you deal with a, you know, a map file? I don't even know what it's called. I'm a lawyer, not, you know, a statistician. But all I know is that I can use PlanScore and so can you. And so basically what we do is that we are going to compile as maps are submitted, as they're proposed by the legislature, um, we are going to have them uploaded to PlanScore and you can look at um, how fair that map is with three different metrics that uh, measure partisan fairness. And you can compare it going all the way back to the maps from 1970. And that's your congressional map, your state legislatures. We have it all there in one place. Um, if you're someone who's a little bit more in the weeds and it's getting easier and easier, um, you can actually draw your own map and submit it to your map drawers. Um, there's some resources for that. District R is one of them. Um, Dave's redistricting is a classic. Um, and there's just tons of resources that you can use to draw your map. And then what I would suggest highly is to then take that map that it spits out 
and you can plug it into plan score so that if you are submitting a draft map to your map drawers, you're not accidentally submitting a partisan gerrymander. Because if what you're focused on is your community of interest, um, and then you make your map that you say, oh, this is perfect for us, you want to make sure that you're not accidentally doing a huge partisan gerrymander because you didn't have that data. So that's something that you can do. Also, you don't have to submit a map to have a voice in this process. You can just submit testimony. And I would really suggest that people do this. If you have a community that you're a part of, and it can be, you know, a racial or ethnic community, it can also be something, you know, in California, I know there's people that live along highway corridors and their big interest is wildfires that happen to hit these highway corridors. If that's your number one interest, then you should get together with your community and submit testimony about why your community is important, why it's cohesive, and why it should be represented. And building that record is very important, either you know to make sure that the legislatures or the map drawers listen to you, or to have a record later on if they don't. Stephen, I know that you've got some, uh, you've been working on a series, some reporting coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've got uh, coming down the pike? Yeah, so uh, this week we're hoping to roll out a story uh, that looks at the partisan landscape in every single state and looks at the rules in each of those states and kind of games out what we expect to happen in the redistricting process, particularly you know, whether one party, if any uh, at all, is going to control redistricting uh, for the coming decade. Uh, so you know, the big takeaway from the, this story is that uh, nationally, Republicans, because of how well they did in the last election and how well they did in the 2010 elections that determined the maps used in the 2020 election, uh, they are poised to control redistricting in at least twice as much, if not three times as much as the country as Democrats. And because of that, they are headed towards having a sizable advantage in terms of the way that the maps lean overall uh, at the congressional level. And then in some of these states, you know, in, in a state like North Carolina or Texas, uh, they're, they're poised for a, a very big advantage. And Democrats, while they do have a few states such as Illinois or New York, where, they, where they're in charge of the process and can push through these gerrymanders too, uh, those states are, are, are very few and far between compared to Republicans. Uh, now, that, that being said, you know, this, this advantage for Republicans isn't as large as it was after the 2010 election. So hopefully, you know, Democratic wins in some of these, these swing states or the enactment of these independent redistricting commissions in states such as Michigan, and elsewhere uh, will be a, a tool to help level the playing field this, this coming decade. Uh, and so hopefully we won't see maps as uh, unbalanced as they were 10 years ago. Um, but, you know, the landscape as, as it is shaping up to be is still very tilted to one side, which is why it's very important uh, that Congress gets its act together and, and Democrats in the Senate agree to pass some sort of reform that applies everywhere into both parties, no matter who is in power. Stephen, if I can uh, take a second to just sort of toot our own uh, Daily Coast horn here. Um, you have submitted maps in the past. Am I mistaken in that? And successfully? Yes, uh, yes well, I didn't right. even so... I didn't even know about this. This is news to me. <laughs> breaking news. Daily Coast is submitting maps. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, Stephen. Yeah, so two years ago, the, the Republican governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, he uh, created a bipartisan advisory commission where they were soliciting uh, maps for their, their congressional map. There was litigation at the time where Democrats had drawn this, this crazy gerrymander and uh, plaintiffs were challenging it in court under the First Amendment saying like, look, this is a violation of our rights. Uh, and so the district court had struck that map down and there was hope that the Supreme Court, uh, when Anthony Kennedy was still on the bench, would uphold that ruling and issue some sort of binding precedent against gerrymandering. 
Uh, and so when that was going on, I submitted a map redrawing the 6th Congressional District, uh, which is in the western part of the state. Uh, and the governor's panel ended up choosing that map. Uh, but unfortunately, the Supreme Court ended up, you know, reversing the decision and saying, like, look, you can't challenge partisan gerrymandering in federal court. Uh, you know, if that had not happened, there's there's a chance they could have uh, implemented a map that I had drawn, which that would have been great. But, you know, it's it was, it was very encouraging to see this this happening. And, and even when, you know, it's a Democratic gerrymander, you know, we should, should still be challenging these maps so long as there is a process that applies to both parties everywhere saying, look, you know, gerrymandering is not right and it's going to be illegal. Yeah, I... Um I, we've been very lucky to have Stephen uh, internally, and every time that uh, he we, we go to Netroots or something, and he does a presentation where him and and the folks at Daily Coast Elections have drawn like what a fully Republican map looks like, what a fully liberal map looks like, what a fair map looks like. I'm always blown away, um, and I find it encouraging that I literally know someone who has drawn a map that. Were it not for a Supreme Court decision, goodness, the world we live in, um, it would have been cool to see if Maryland would have done that. Uh, district map. So I want our listeners to know that this is something that you can literally do. People literally do it. Yeah. You know, th this decade, because of the way that technology has changed, there are all these apps that make it really easy to hop in and draw your own district maps. And those didn't really exist to the degree they do a decade ago. Last decade, there were one or two apps uh, that were popular with a very niche, uh, you know, selection of map drawers. And the decade before that, in the 2000s, there was just nothing. So the degree to which the public can participate this decade is orders of magnitudes larger than it's ever been before. And, and that should change the process for the better in, in ways that we're still, uh, you know, going to start understanding. And, and when we have, uh, you know, people who are just in the community being able to hop online and draw districts and say, look, you know, this is a better reflection of my community than what a legislature just proposed. They can then turn around and submit that to a legislature as testimony or even to a court and say, look, this is a better map. Please draw this. Can you plug just a couple name, just a couple of those apps or a few of those apps that, so that people can figure out where to go? Yeah, so one of the, the, the main ones is called Dave's Redistricting App, and it's free online to use. Uh, and it, it is an app that I've used a lot over the last decade, you know, just when I want to sketch out something real quick before you know drawing it more pro professional software. But this app has really come a long way. It's got a lot more data and a lot more tools uh, and a lot more analytical um, capabilities than it, than it did last decade. And now it has the ability to, you can draw maps at the most granular, lo granular level, which is the census block level, uh, which is necessary to be able to draw a map to submit to a court or a commission or a legislature. Uh, there are a few other tools like District R or District Builder that allow you to do some pretty similar stuff. Uh, but, but Dave's Redistricting really just has a large user community of people who are drawing maps for fun. They're drawing maps for their educational purposes. They're doing it as their hobby or they're doing it to try to persuade map makers to adopt better districts. Sorry, go ahead, Simone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Two things. One, I'll say, wherever you're drawing your map, just make sure you score it for partisan fairness before you submit it yep. um, so that, you know, you aren't submitting a partisan gerrymander. Um, and planscore.org is where you can do that. Because if you have a legislature or map drawers that want to draw a partisan gerrymander and you submit one to them, they can latch on to that as an excuse and say, well, this was a publicly submitted map. We're not doing partisan gerrymandering. We're listening to the people. And so that's one thing that's really important. Something else that I want to say is make sure that you're drawing for your community. Um, there's a classic example of this that we always talk about from California, where there were two Native American communities that a well-meaning districting commission 
drew together because they wanted to provide them with the district. And then when it came time for public hearings, the two Native American communities came and said, we actually have completely different interests. You didn't talk to us and ask if we actually have our interests that are aligned. So one thing is that, you know, when you're drawing these sample maps and when you're submitting your testimony, be sure that you're speaking from a community that you're a part of or that you're working with or that you've spoken with so that you make sure that what you're drawing really is representative of the community that you're, you know, well-intentioned, you know, trying to represent. Let's, uh, let's work in two more questions. I'm going to throw out one and Kara, you can figure out what your, what your last, you know, blockbuster question is. Uh, Simone, I'm wondering what you guys will be looking for um, when deciding what states to file lawsuits against in this next cycle. What, what, are, the, what are the benchmarks or you know, indicators for you? Yeah, I mean, we look at the same metrics of partisan fairness that we're show, telling everyone else to look at you know, in, our, in our website. And so we're going to start there and see if there's any really severe partisan gerrymanders. We're also, you know, obviously we talk about partisan gerrymandering a lot. There's still racial gerrymandering and we want to still ensure that, you know, uh, minority communities are being properly represented and not having their voices diluted. And so that's something that we are always on the lookout for. And like I said earlier, for partisan gerrymandering, if there's unilateral control or a gridlock, those are going to be the places that it's most likely to happen. But we've got our eyes open everywhere. My big blockbuster question, no pressure at all, Carrie, for your guest co-host is, um, where can folks find you, uh, Stephen? Uh, also, I would love for you to plug all the great Daily Coast election stuff we're doing. And then uh, after Stephen and Simone, where can folks find you? Uh, yeah, so you can find me uh, on Twitter at my handle is politicswolf. Uh, and then also our, our election site is, is elections.dailycoast.com. Uh, and you know you can also find uh, Daily Coast Elections on Twitter. It's at uh, DK Elections, where uh, myself and, and my colleagues uh, Dave Neer and Jeff Singer are bringing you the latest of all the campaign news happening across the country. Uh, and we'll also be tracking redistricting uh, at, at both of those locations. Uh, so you know, be sure to follow us. You can also subscribe to our, our various newsletters, the Morning Digest, or the, or the Voting Rights Roundup, where we talk about these issues in even greater depth. Yeah, and I'm uh, on Twitter, at Simone Leeper. It's pretty self-explanatory. It is my name. Uh, Campaign Legal Center, also pretty self-explanatory, at Campaign Legal. Um, and if you want to find any of the resources that I've mentioned, campaignlegal.org is the place to go. And you just will click into whichever democracy you, you want or planscore.org. Um, we launched this week, and it's going to become more and more relevant as the data drops. Right. So I just want to um, I just want to go ahead and wrap this up by saying, you know, some ways to get for people to get involved. There were obviously a lot of a lot of links that they mentioned. Um, but uh, but the things that we can be looking for in terms of legislation is, you know, if you want to get involved on the local level in passing a state voting rights act, that's one one thing in passing a, trying to pass a nonpartisan uh, commission ballot measure. That's another thing. And the Voting Rights Act um, that whatever whatever the Democrats end up settling on. Right. Because that's still being negotiated. Um, and I think that we're going to see something scaled down, but still something that could be fairly robust, as they say in D.C. So, um, you know, that hopefully we'll have an anti gerrymandering uh, provision, as well as some other very good things. Um, actually, the outline that uh, that Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia put his bullet points of things that he wanted included weren't 
particularly bad. I don't want to go into the details of them, but that would be a bad bill if something like that passed. Uh, it'd be a pretty good bill. So uh, Simone told us that, you know, even even if for the next year our, our um, you know, things get really gerrymandered and it's a mess of a map, um, if this were to pass, that could then going forward now after the next cycle have an impact on undoing some of these terrible gerrymanders. Did I understand that correctly, Simone? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, right. Obviously, so, if, yeah. if the Congress passed either the, you know, the Thor, the People Act or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, there's different provisions in each of those that we want. Um, it would definitely impact, you know, races going forward. So it's not over for a whole decade, right? It's not over for a whole decade, even if we don't manage to stop the gerrymander that's coming up this cycle. Um, so anyway, thank you for joining us. I want to say thank you. I'm just going to wrap us all up together. Thank you to our guests, Simone Leeper and uh, Stephen Wolf. Um, thank you, as always, to our producer, Walter Einenkel, uh, who makes this happen almost every week, except for when he's out. And my co-host, Kara Zelaya, steps in as producer. So she's kind of like she does it all. And um, to our viewers and listeners, of course, thank you. You are the reason we're even here in the first place. I'm Carrie Elleveld. Please stay safe until next week's episode of The Brief. Mask up. Keep yourself protected and your loved ones protected. And eventually we will get through this thing. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.